Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's Friday, May 27th. I'm Erin O'Toole. For many Coloradans, Memorial Day weekend marks the official start of barbecue season. Not that we're afraid to fire up the grill in the middle of winter, but there is just something about this holiday weekend that inspires the outdoor cook to clean off the grill or the smoker and get dinner fired up. Barbecue is hands down one of the most popular cuisines in the country right now. But where did barbecue come from? And why is it that the contributions of African Americans who helped establish this cooking style are left out of the current conversation around barbecue? To get some of those answers, I spoke with Adrian Miller. He's a soul food scholar and a certified barbecue judge. Miller is also a Denver-based attorney and recipient of a James Beard Foundation Book Award. His most recent book, Black Smoke, is intended to celebrate African-American barbecue culture and to restore the voices of Black Americans to barbecue storytelling. We met at a family-owned barbecue restaurant in Loveland in September and talked about barbecue's evolution over platters of chicken, ribs, hot links, and hush puppies. Okay. Now, I know that you are a barbecue judge. What does that involve? I mean, how do you prove your kind of bona fides? <laughs> yeah, so I got to tell you, being a barbecue judge, that's the best conversation starter I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, like, I worked in the White House, and people say, oh, you worked in the White House? That's cool. But you're a barbecue judge? I want to talk to you about that. What do you look for? I mean, what sets a winning barbecue entry uh, above the others? Uh, it's very subjective. And maybe I should wait till we get a rib to just sure. yeah. test it. But um, I'll go through it anyway, because okay. I don't want to talk with my mouth full. So you get a rib, you look at it lovingly, okay. then you take a bite out of the middle, and then you pull back. Now, there should be some slight resistance, but the meat that you bite into should come away cleanly from the bone, and then the exposed bone should turn white. As we wait for the food to get here, can we start by talking about where barbecue comes from? What are the origins of this cooking method? Yeah, so you have to understand that barbecue history is hazy because um, it's just not well documented. So the major players when it comes to barbecue are Native Americans, so indigenous people in the Americas, uh, Europeans, often colonizers, and explorers and colonizers, and then enslaved Africans, later enslaved African Americans. So of those three major groups of people who are in play, only one has a literary tradition. Everybody else is oral histories. So it's hard to get to know what happened 400, 500 years ago. So the earliest written account we get of barbecue is Columbus and crew arriving in the Caribbean in the early 1490s, and they see the indigenous people on an island doing a type of cooking that they'd never really seen before. And it was cooking a mixture of vegetables, fish, and iguanas on a raised platform made out of green sticks over very slow fire. So what barbecue, the word barbecue comes from, it's like a a historical game of telephone. You remember (laughs) playing telephone? I do, Yep. yep. So Spanish called this barbacoa and barbacoa was an approximation of what the indigenous people were calling the raised platform that the food was cooked on. So it wasn't the food or the process. It was the equipment. It was the equipment. 
and you see those raised platforms throughout the Americas, okay? Okay. So even in the American South and then going to South America, okay? You see this raised platform all over the place. So English barbecue is an approximation of barbacoa. Gotcha. So whatever the Taino Indians were saying, the Native Americans became barbacoa, and then it became barbecue in English. And so then how did this, um, what, you know, was equipment and a way to cook certain foods, how did that um, become entwined with the African Americans? So um, that's where things are kind of, we just don't know for sure, but this is what we do know. Often when Native Americans were doing what we call barbecue in the early days, it was more about preservation than immediate consumption. So they were kind of smoking meats to hang on to them for a long time. Europeans were used to faster cooking techniques like grilling and roasting. And so this very slow type of cooking gets merged with this very fast type of cooking so you get an intermediate type of cooking. That's what we call barbecue. So then enslaved Africans get in the mix because they come with their own smoking traditions and this all gets mingled up together and eventually by the time we get to the late 1600s and 1700s, barbecue meant cooking whole animals. They could be a pig, a cow, sheep. If they did a cow, they would quarter it because cows are just too big. Um, sheep, possum, whatever, whole animals. And then you would butterfly them and stick rods through the sides of them and then cook them over this pit filled with hardwood burning coals. Now, the reason why African Americans get thrown in the mix is because this type of barbecue is very hard work. And the racial dynamics of the antebellum South is if you wanted someone to do hard work and not pay them, you had enslaved Africans and later enslaved African Americans do them. And then enslaved African Americans get associated with barbecue because it's scalable. So by the time we're in the mid 1700s, you're having huge barbecues for thousands, hundreds of people and thousands of people. Barbecue started off as a small thing, you know, people getting together to shoot some guns, play cards, tell stories, you know, lies, that kind of thing. Um, and then there were social events. But then barbecue, because it's scalable, starts to become part of civic culture. So almost any celebration, 4th of July, completing some civic public works project would be celebrated with a barbecue. And as long as you had enough land and enough labor and enough food, you can do a barbecue for thousands of people. There's reasons why you don't see barbecues for, uh, or sorry, you don't see um, fried chicken dinners for 10,000 people in newspaper articles because it would be a logistical nightmare, right? But you can do barbecue. And by the 1820s, we're seeing barbecues for 50,000 people being reported. At this point, our food arrived at the table. Yeah. So, do you want to take one of these plates? So why don't you get a little bit of meat? Okay, so I'll just take one of these toast things. This seems like a good time to kind of talk about why you wrote your most recent book, Black Smoke. Um, it's kind of about bringing back the voices of African Americans to this story. Yeah, so what I, um, when I was first writing my book on the history of soul food, I thought I was going to have a chapter on barbecue in the book, but then I, I got so much information, I thought, you know what, this needs its own treatment. So I just started paying attention to storytelling about barbecue. And I think the pivotal moment was I was watching the Food Network and there was an episode, um, it was a special show called Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue. And um, the show which featured the top personalities, figures, restaurants in Southern Barbecue did not feature any African Americans. Not one? Not one. And so I thought, well, first of all, how does this even happen? And then the second thing that I thought is, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue and I just didn't pay close attention to the, 
the commercials. <laughs> so then I just started looking at other TV shows, magazines, newspapers, and it was the same problem. African Americans were either um, bit players in the barbecue story or left out completely. So Black Smoke was a response to that, and it was essentially um, a celebration of African American barbecue culture and a restoration of African Americans to barbecue storytelling. Um, well, I did want to ask you about this because we, you know, we know about regional differences in barbecue. I mean, there's Memphis and Kansas City, and I don't know where else. But there and 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 rivalries too. Um, but you actually talk about an African American aesthetic to barbecue. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean? Yeah. So people want to ask me. Okay, look, you're writing this book. So what's the? I, I started one of my chapters with an anecdote from John Grisham. Please share. Yeah. So we were at this event. And, you know, when he heard about what my book's about, he was a little incredulous. Uh, and he said, okay, so what's the difference between white barbecue and black barbecue? And I said, black barbecue tastes better. Uh, and then, you know, if you ask me to elaborate, uh, he, he cracked up. He was nonplussed, and actually everybody else in the audience just cracked up, but I held him speechless for a second. So um, I, I would say that it's, it's in the preparation. So in African-American barbecue circles, it's typically more direct cooking. So that means cooking above the heat source at a higher temperature, at least to start out and then maybe going at a lower temperature. So when you often hear about barbecue, you hear low and slow. That means cooking over low heat for a long period of time. So African-American um, barbecue is going to be more that direct cooking. So that means it's going to be a little more char on the meat. Um, it's going ha to have a little tug to it. Um, African-American barbecue usually features pork spare ribs, pork shoulder, chicken, and a type of spicy sausage called hot links. So, you know, there are regional differences, but overall, you're not going to see a lot of beef in an African-American-run barbecue joint. One thing that has definitely been a shift in barbecue culture, as there's been a movement away from, say, African-American forms of barbecue, and one thing I would say that I forgot to mention earlier is Definitely a part of the African-American barbecue aesthetic is having sauce on your barbecue. So there's a growing, with the shift away from kind of African-American forms of barbecue, there's been a de-emphasis on sauce. So more and more people are like, oh, good barbecue shouldn't be sauce. You should just be able to taste the meat. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say most African-Americans would respond to that saying, says who? Um, it's all about the sauce. Yeah, I've been to places where you get served your barbecue, and it's just a the plate is an ocean of sauce with little islands of meat poking through. That's how important sauce is. I don't know, maybe we should start with the rib, because I'm really curious to try the trip. So now... I want you to. I want you to do it. Okay. Okay. So remember what? Do you remember what I told you? Um, I hold it. Right. Is there a side? Okay. Nope. You can I'm, take any side. Okay. Look, wait, 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 wait. Slow down. Oh. Okay. This is oh. an experience. <laughs> so look at it. Look I, at it lovingly. I look at it lovingly. All right. Now you so focus on the center. Okay. So see how the whole thing didn't slip off. So yeah. that's a good sign. Did you get to the bone? All right. Cool. Now with the bone exposed to the air, do you see it turn? Because uh, there's a shadow. Is it turning white? Can you see that? It is. What kind of rib is this? So that is a St. Louis cut spare rib. The St. Louis cut is essentially an effort by butchers to make a rack of ribs look more uniform and rectangular in appearance. So in African-American joints, you're, you're typically going to get the full rib. So it would be this with the spare rib attached. Oh, okay. 
So that's that's another difference um, between, say, a black joint, a black-owned barbecue joint, and others. Can I get baked beans tonight, Yeah, I want to ask about some of the legendary figures in barbecue, and I'm talking 1800s. Uh, I was in your book really captivated by Columbus B. Hill. Uh, he did some very large barbecues for some pretty high-profile people. Can you talk about Columbus B. Hill? Yeah, Columbus B. Hill. He's just one of the, my favorite characters to find. So uh, he's from West Tennessee. He arrives in Denver in the late 1870s. And so he gets here, and then, you know, by the early 1800, or 1880s, he's doing barbecues for uh, like two to 3,000 people. So in 1882, there was this really popular barbecue called the Denver Merchants Barbecue. So he was involved in that. Okay. And then another milestone is when the cornerstone laying ceremony was held for our state capitol on July 4th, 1890. He did a barbecue for 25,000 people in Lincoln Park, so right, you know, at the base of the Capitol. Yeah. Well, you talked about barbecue being scalable, so this yeah. clearly... <laughs> yeah. His most famous slash infamous barbecue... Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. So also in the 1890s, in the Greeley area, they would have potato days, which is still celebrated today, but often they would do a lamb barbecue. And so uh, there were newspaper articles about him presiding over barbecues in the 1890s, and 10,000 people showing up for those barbecues. Um, but his most famous slash infamous barbecue was for the 1898 stock show, January 1898. And this would have been in Denver. It was in Denver. So surprise, surprise, the future of the stock show was in doubt at that time. <laughs> Some things never change. Well. Right. And so the Denver Stock Growers Association decided to have this VIP barbecue. Okay. So they were going to, you know, just like put on a nice spread for all of these people. And, and hopefully that would secure the stock show's future. So um, word got out in Lodo, which was the seedy part of town then. Okay. And so 30,000 people showed up for this 5,000-person barbecue. Oof. So they were, there was a lot of clamoring. There's some pictures of this, actually, um, black and white photos from this. Some people took pictures of that. But a lot of it was illustrated. And so um, somebody got the wild and crazy idea that they could chill out people by giving out free beer from the Zhang Brewery that was nearby. <laughs> And that didn't go over so well. And the governor of Colorado and the mayor of Denver at that time got on a bandstand trying to chill people out because they were really agitated. And they got pelted with food and other things, and so they had to get off the bandstand. And then there was a full-on food riot. Wow. I mean, women and children weeping, fights breaking out. And it's illustrated in the newspapers of the time. So um, for, I think, unfairly, Columbus B. Hill gets blame for this. And so his reputation takes a hit, but he's still doing barbecues in the black community on a regular basis in the years following. The last big barbecue that he does is in the mid-aughts, 19-aughts. He does, he's put on a train to Seattle to cook a barbecue for the Pacific Fleet. Wow. So he okay. does a barbecue for uh, like several thousand people. Yeah, so he has um, a comeback moment. He has a comeback moment. But yeah, legendary figure. Um, and in newspapers of the time, he was celebrated as one of the the best barbecue men in the West. Was that unusual to, you know, for newspapers to write so glowingly about an African-American? Oh, absolutely. Time? Most newspapers of the time didn't even take the moment to, you know, take the opportunity to interview African-Americans. They were talked about, but never really interviewed. But um, the food, co the coverage changes over the years. So in the early 19th century, barbecue reporting was like, oh, barbecue was held on this day. This is what they ate. This is, these were the hosts. Here's how many people attended. 
over time, they start paying more attention to the food served, and then they start interviewing the cooks. And because African-Americans so dominated barbecue, we get a sense of these personalities who were involved in this cuisine. And it really is until the 1890s that you see more and more white men getting involved. There were certainly white men who were barbecuing before, but in terms of getting press coverage, it really doesn't start happening until the 1890s. And I'm so glad that they reported on what was served at these giant barbecues because I think it was so interesting and so different what they served back then. Yeah. Well, even for that time, when he did that stock show barbecue, that, w- that was, I mean, they had uh, not only the traditional pork, beef, goats, lamb, but they had possum, they had Rocky Mountain sheep, they had elk, they had a bison. I mean, that was a crazy menu. And have you ever had possum? I have not had possum. I really want to try it. That's not something you're going to hear from a lot of people. (laughs) I want to talk about another Colorado barbecue legend, and that's Daddy Bruce Randolph. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, so Daddy Bruce Randolph was born in 1900 in Pastoria, Arkansas and um, had a very interesting life, but makes his way to Denver in the early 60s and uh, decides to run a barbecue joint and manages to secure the funds to do that. And then um, he was a person of deep faith, and although he was never ordained as clergy, he would certainly try to live his life out as a person of faith. And so he started this tradition of feeding people on Thanksgiving Day, giving a free meal. And in short order, he's feeding thousands of people. At the height of this tradition, he was feeding 10,000 people. And he was written up in newspapers all over the place. So I wanted to write about him in my uh, chapter on church barbecue, just to show how there's like a little bit of an intersection. I did want to ask about the connection between church and barbecue. What is the relationship between you know the faith community and barbecue? So um, let me just uh, first start off by saying that barbecue has been a distraction to my own spiritual life. Um, when I read the Bible and I see any mention of a burnt offering, I think about barbecue. Um, you know, questions like the burning bush in Moses, did it smell like hickory or oak or maybe mesquite? Yeah. The, is Prophet Ezekiel talking about the Valley of Dry Bones where they spare ribs? You know, I know. Let me stop blaspheming. So, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, you find a lot of black preachers were barbecue people. And I think it's, part, it's a function of economics as well. Um, a lot of African-American churches um, and, you know, African-Americans, there's a wealth gap, right? So they just didn't have as much money as other places. So a lot of African-American preachers were bivocational. So they would uh, run the church maybe on the weekends, but then they needed to find another job. And, um, you know, barbecue was a good way to make a part-time living because in the early days of barbecue, you weren't running a barbecue joint every day of the week. You would only do it for certain times during the week. Um, so things have changed greatly. So if there is a holy land, so there's something about preaching the word of God and smoking meat. I don't know deeply what that connection is, but um, there's a funny quote in my book from Columbus B. Hill uh, talking about burnt offerings and how it just goes back to the, you know, the practice of altars and other things and making a pleasing aroma (laughs) for God. We've been talking about regional differences in barbecue. Is there a Colorado style of barbecue that's distinctive? There used to be, but we have let it slip. So, you know, 50 years ago, we were known for lamb and bison. In fact, if you went to a knowledgeable butcher and asked for a a Denver rack, you're going to get a rack of lamb ribs. And so that's how much we were associated with lamb. In fact, uh, chefs around the world, they perk up when they hear Colorado lamb, as much as they perk up when they hear New Zealand lamb. 
Awesome. So that's the reputation that we have. So um, we were known for lamb and bison, and there there were regularly lamb barbecue contests in the in the mountains. They were called the High Country Lamb Cookoff. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, like a lot of those competitors were Basque people of Basque heritage because there were Basque sheep herders that settled in the mountains. So it was an interesting culture. But I don't think that contest exists anymore. Um, and then bison never took hold. And, and bison is tricky to barbecue because it's a lean meat. So you have to know what you're doing in order to do that. So um, we've gotten away from it. Um, there's only one barbecue joint in Denver that I know of that regularly cooks both bison and lamb. It's called Roaming Buffalo Barbecue. And they're doing Colorado barbecue. So I wish more places would do that. And so um, one of my projects that I'm working on is I'm trying to enlist a whole bunch of people so that we can have a contest to create a signature Colorado barbecue dish involving lamb and or bison. And Adrian, I want to wrap up just by asking you, what do you want people to know in this effort to bring African-American voices back into the conversation and back into the culture around barbecue? The main things I want people to know is that barbecue, as we understand it, is Native American in origin. And that at some point, that culinary heritage was passed on to African-Americans. And that African-Americans, for a couple of centuries, were barbecue's indispensable cooks. So I want people to understand just the influence that African-Americans have had and that how pervasive it is. And if you're going to talk about barbecue in the United States, you've got to include African-Americans. To do anything else is just whack. Writer, attorney, certified barbecue judge, Adrian Miller, thank you so much for having lunch and thank you for talking with us. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Good to sup with you. I spoke with Colorado author and food historian Adrian Miller last September about his book Black Smoke, African Americans, and the United States of Barbecue. Find more information in the show notes or at KUNC.org. That's it for today's Colorado edition. Our executive producer is Sean Corcoran. Digital is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Whether your holiday weekend includes barbecue or not, I hope you have a restful, safe, and meaningful Memorial Day. Thank you so much for listening. And be sure to join me next week for more of what's happening in Northern Colorado. 